The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. He ascended into hell. Christ, our living head, will one day come again. Just the living and the dead I believe and trust in Him I will trust in my Redeemer Sing of His love that lasts forever Know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we will take a look at various apparent, supposed, Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis using the original languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand His revelation of Himself and His revelation to man. Father, I pray that as this and any other discussions go forward, that Your Spirit would go forth to open minds and hearts as to the truth, power, and life found within Your Word. I pray that by your grace, those whom you will, will have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to soften, and spirits to perceive the message of your redemptive love and mercy. 
I ask your blessing upon the work of this apologetic series. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, there are countless and innumerable books, publications, and websites dedicated to presenting what many believe to be insurmountable contradictions contained in the Bible. These various works are offered ostensibly with the idea that by doing so, the supposed contradictions given demonstrate that individually and cumulatively that they undermine, if not hopefully forever destroy, the credibility and integrity of God's Word as a whole. Now, if we were to enter into the quest and discussion with complete objectivity, if we were to study, examine, and evaluate all the evidence without bias or assumption, and then come to the conclusion that the Bible cannot be trusted, then that's one thing. However, entering into and maintaining any intellectual pursuit built upon any assumption, however well accepted, is a disingenuous endeavor at best. Thus, we must establish a few preliminary ground rules. The first and paramount fact is that when we are discussing contradictions, we are inevitably initiating what is someone's perception of two or more pieces of information which appear to disagree with one another in part or in whole. As such, it is important to remember that whether we are talking about the Bible or any other subject matter, that appearances are just that. Appearances can be very convincing to the senses indeed, but one need go no further than a magic show to be reminded that appearances are not necessarily fact. As a result, as we begin our discussion, we would do well to remember that what we are talking about in the end are apparent Bible contradictions. The second critical element is to recognize what methods, ideas, and tools we are using to identify any apparent Bible contradictions, and perhaps equally, if not more importantly, which we use to resolve them. Thankfully, in all honesty, I'm not the first to have tread this road. Between those who have frequented finding and posing the various apparent Bible contradictions, and those who have resolved them, we have the advantage of seeing a pattern which emerges, which in general explains why such apparent Bible contradictions surface to begin with, as well as how they are ultimately resolved. I would submit that while perhaps not exhaustive, the following points represent the primary reasons why most, if not all, apparent Bible contradictions arise, as well as how they are resolved. Number one, incorrect worldview. When I say incorrect worldview, Let's acknowledge where, for the most part, these supposed and or apparent contradictions originate. These alleged contradictions are typically, if not exclusively circulated and maintained by the atheist, the skeptic, and the humanist throughout history. For the sake of brevity, and so as not to constantly repeat myself, I will hereafter affectionately refer to the atheist, 
the skeptic, and the humanist collectively as Mr. Ash. A for atheist, S for skeptic, and H for humanist. It should be remembered that each term has a meaning for the purposes of our episodes, which is worth defining. The atheist, for example, is, for the purposes of our discussion, someone who confidently asserts that there is no God. Mind you, this is different from being intellectually open-minded and saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure i.e. an agnostic. No, the type we are talking about is exuberantly confident in asserting that there is no God. In fact, they are now at the stage in their worldview that they begin with the priori bias that there can be no God. Hence, anyone, whether personally or by proxy of a book, i.e. the Bible, who claims that there is a God is automatically presenting fiction and consequently are to be dismissed as such at the outset. In the second case of the skeptic, we're not talking about skeptical in the sense that someone does not know or one who has doubts or intellectual difficulties, but at the same time is honestly and sincerely willing to be convinced. Instead, the term skeptic is being used to describe those who make a career out of always being unconvinced, despite how much information, evidence, or data they might have. The skeptic has built a wall of their own making behind which they constantly launch sniper attacks at the Bible and challenge people of faith with information which is laden with various logical fallacies and hidden assumptions. The challengers are always insincere in the end because they have already walled themselves off from having an open mind and heart. Lastly, there is the humanist. When I use the word humanist, I am talking about those who proceed from the worldview that man is the center and measure of all things. That is to say that mankind is the one who is the ultimate authority in defining, maintaining, and evaluating meaning, morals, justice, truth, and beauty in the universe. Thus, what is true and false, good and evil, reality and imagination, is inevitably a matter of consensus, percentage, opinion, culture, environment, mood, etc. throughout history. In the case of Mr. Ash, if he was honest and candid with himself, the truth is that the majority, if not the entire basis for looking for and posing such supposed contradictory questions about the Bible, lies in the reality that he consciously or unconsciously does so in the hope of convincing himself that ultimate authority that is, ultimate authority apart from man, does not exist. Essentially, if he can find enough supposed contradictions in the Bible, then he can convince himself that the Bible is not God's word, but rather simply another book. Since the Bible is not God's word, God does not really exist, since if he did, 
the Bible would have no such supposed contradictions. Since God does not exist, there is no final authority, and Mr. Ash can do what is good in his own eyes. Consequently, destroying the Bible equals giving Mr. Ash the perceived freedom to do whatever he wants and call that good. Mind you, while this episode is not designed to argue the merits of whether God exists or not, or whether the Bible is God's word, the discussion and argument of supposed Bible contradictions is, in Mr. Ash's paradigm, the first stepping stone in the pathway to the ultimate goal of perceptually unseating God from the throne of reality. None of this should be construed to suggest that having honest questions and or doubts prohibits one from being a sincere Christian. Contrary to what some might imagine, being a Christian does not imply that you have to relinquish your brain or intellect at the entrance to the doorway. With all this being said, the solution is that we simply need to be aware of our bias and assumptions. It's not a question of if we have them. It's a question of what they are and whether we are able to either set them aside to investigate, ask questions, and make conclusions independently of them. In the case of Mr. Ash, he largely initiates and completes his conclusions to all such questions beginning with the assumption and bias that there is no God, that everything is explained exclusively by natural law, and that man is the final arbiter of truth, meaning, morals, justice, and beauty. 2. Incorrect translation and or understanding of original languages. Oftentimes, Mr. Ash would like to present the various apparent Bible contradictions with the character idea that God wrote the Bible using a divine word processor, edited it, printed it, and dropped it out of heaven into Moses' or someone else's hands. Consequently, in Mr. Ash's mind, the fact that we see any supposed variance simply serves to demonstrate that the straw man character which they have concocted is correct. By extension, since there is even one variant, we must reject the entire work. However, as opposed to this character methodology used, instead, it must always be remembered that the Bible is actually a series of 66 books composed by some 40 authors. These authors were moved and inspired consciously or unconsciously by God's Holy Spirit over a period of some several thousand years to compose the information therein. The various authors wrote in the languages of their day, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. For anyone who has taken the time to do any kind of research, they know that oftentimes any one word in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek can have one or more English words to clearly portray the essence and meaning of the original word in its language. 
Inevitably, when we consider the nuances involved in understanding and translating a monumental book such as the Bible, which contains many thousands of such words, we would expect to see a certain level of difficulty which arises from this dynamic. Yet, despite the enormous challenges which existed, if instead of focusing on apparent contradictions, we focus on the consistency of the central message contained, we would see what exists with a sense of awe and respect. For more information on this aspect of the Bible, I would direct the interested listener to the episode entitled, The Bible, A Message from God to Man. Now, because it has been stated that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God, Mr. Ash frequently comes to the wrong conclusion about what those words imply. Our assumption as Christians is that God exists. Because he exists, we would expect to find God revealing himself to his creation, man, in various ways that we could reasonably understand his message provided. Our presumptive fact is that the Bible is God's message to mankind. If so, we would expect that not only would his intended message be reasonably understandable, but in fact, we would expect that God would construct his message in such a way that we might reasonably ensure that the essential information within the message is intact. This is so often where Mr. Ash makes a mistake. Mr. Ash confuses an intelligent, inspired, and infallible message with a message which is pristine and cosmetically perfect in every respect. For example, as it applies to original languages, I might say God inspired me to say, quote, it is on fire even as we speak, unquote. If then I write down in Hebrew and it is copied 100 times over a thousand years, retranslated into English, it might be possible to have an end result a thousand years later where I read, quote, it is on fire, no comma, just as I said, unquote. There are inevitably two ways to look at the process and the end result. One is to say that the essential message that something is on fire is intact and that nothing in the original inspired intent of the core message has changed. The other is to compare the original to the end result, ignore the challenges present within the process, and declare that the entire message is illegitimate, flawed, or errant from its inception. In the end, by disregarding the core message, those who do so run the very real risk of falling victim to being burned with fire. 3. Failure to place things into proper context. Even the Bible itself states this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, quote, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, unquote. While admittedly the topic matter at hand is prophecy, the basic premise nevertheless is one that suitably fits all of the Bible. If the Bible is God's word, then it is we who are searching diligently and humbly to discover his meaning instead of laboring to make each verse comport to our desired meaning. 
It is the difference between exegesis, i.e. reading ideas out of or from God's word, and eisegesis, i.e. reading our ideas into God's word, and then assuming the result corroborates our theory. Thus, each word becomes subject to being interpreted and understood according to the immediate sentence, each sentence according to the paragraph, each paragraph according to the chapter, each chapter according to the book, and each book according to the whole Bible. Number four, failure to apply proper grammar. Each language, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and English, has its own rules of grammar. Failure to properly apply the rules of vocabulary, grammar, and syntax in any language can and will lead to any number of contradictions and or errors. 5. Failure to correctly understand culture. Many of the various books of the Bible were written by different authors to different audiences living in different cultures at different times. Nowhere is it said that God possessed the writers taking over their personalities and replacing them completely with his own. God inspired each writer allowing them to be influenced by their own personality and to communicate to their respective audiences using idioms, metaphors, figures of speech, irony, wit, humor, as well as a myriad of other individual and nuanced cultural influences of the day. 6. Failure to understand genre. While the Bible is ultimately one book in the sense of having an underlying unified message, it should also be understood, as was pointed out, that it is an encyclopedia composed of 66 books by 40 authors. Each author wrote using one or more genres as moved by God to convey the message intended. The Bible is thus comprised of several literary genres including history, law, wisdom, poetry, parable, instruction, prophecy, gospel, epistles, and apocalypse. Consequently, it is critical to take into account what type of genre is involved before we falsely assume the Bible has only one genre and we constantly create a premise wherein many unnecessary apparent contradictions result. This is especially true when it comes to the historical aspects of the Bible, what many fail to remember is that the Bible records the good, the bad, and the ugly, oftentimes without comment or approval on the part of God. Some things simply happened as bad as they were, and the fact that we find them recorded in the Bible does not necessarily mean that God initiated, approved, or liked them. Other times we see things that were a historical reality that may appear to some as good, but again, simply because something happened as a historical reality does not imply that what happened is to be construed as a model to be copied or aspired to. 7. Copyist Error As was pointed out in the episode, The Bible, A Message from God to Man, 
Mr. Ash will often be quick to point out that there are some several thousand variant errors, quote-unquote, contained in the Bible. What Mr. Ash likely won't tell you is that the majority, some 95%, are composed of grammatical errors such as periods, commas, and the like, none of which undermine the integrity of the essential message in question. Nevertheless, there are some variant errors, most, if not all, of which can be ascribed to scribal copyist errors. Now, before Mr. Ash or anyone else walks away in dismay and ridicule at the idea of some 5% variance in various biblical texts due to scribal errors, let's briefly review the issues involved with faithfully copying the Bible. If, for example, Moses wrote the Pentateuch sometime between 1550 to 1200 BC, and we use Codex Sinaiticus dated 350 AD, which contains the entire New Testament and almost the entire Old Testament in Greek as an example of the first mostly complete Bible, we see that there was a roughly a period of 1,500 years between the two dates. During this time, there were no computer word processors, no printing machines, no Xerox copiers, no ballpoint pens, no erasers, no liquid paper, and no stationery stores where one could go buy paper. Therefore, if you or I or Mr. Ash were motivated to preserve some document of importance for generations to come, we would be forced to make paper, ink, and writing instruments by hand in order to have the tools necessary to do so. We would next need to painstaking and laboriously copy the document in question, character by character letter by letter, punctuation mark by punctuation mark, and word by word. If indeed we wish to faithfully preserve the original document in its entirety, we would have to check and cross-check to make sure that we had not made any mistakes in the process. All this sounds fine so long as we are talking about copying a single sheet of paper or perhaps a short letter. Give me a cup of coffee, a nice desk, and a quiet air-conditioned office with a good lunch, and I'll get it done perhaps before dinner. However, in the case of the Bible, if we only take the finished New Testament portion of the Bible and do the math, we find that the New Testament has about 138,000 words. This equals a total of about 690,000 thousand characters including punctuation marks and the spaces between characters. This means that if I was going to copy the New Testament I would have to pick up my quill, dip it in the ink, and carefully copy or include each one of 690,000 characters, punctuation marks, and or spaces in order to have an exact duplicate of the original. Not only this, but in the case of the Old Testament in particular, 
because documents deteriorate with time and usage. We would have to be prepared to copy the Bible numerous times in order to successfully bridge the gap of the 1,500 years in question. Lastly, these scribes and copyists did not have the luxury of doing this monumental work in an air-conditioned office, sitting in a comfy chair with a nice desk. The New and Old Testament scribes and copyists very often faced adversity, captivity, hunger, oppression, fierce opposition, persecution, hostile environments, imprisonment, and many times, death. Perhaps with all of this in mind, a 5% variance factor ceases to be a liability, according to Mr. Ash, and emerges as a testament to God's guidance and inspiration throughout the process, as well as the patience, determination, and sacrifice of God's servants. 8. Discernment 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 states, quote, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. This verse poses an idea which, if true, presents a central, indispensable key to correctly reading, perceiving, understanding, and applying God's word. In essence, the contention and proposition is that the Bible is God's propositional, progressive revelation of himself and his relationship to man given through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit to various writers at various times throughout history. As we summarize God's revelation, we learn that mankind has fallen victim to sin and separation from God through rebellion. The natural state of all man is to therefore forever gravitate on his own to do what is right in his own eyes. The result, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is that we all fall short of God's glory because of man's inability to be righteous to be before God. While in this natural state, to one degree or another, every man has the axiomatic inability to receive God's revelation in all of its fullness and truth because of our state. In order to open the door to begin receiving understanding, perceiving, learning, and applying God's revelation through his word, we must each first, via God's grace, be willing to repent and have God's spirit working and or imputed in our lives, which justifies us immediately and transforms us progressively from the natural state to the new man, wherein God's spirit can then guide us each to know learn, understand, and be conformed to his image. In the meantime, the fact that Mr. Ash constantly and relentlessly characterizes God's word as an ancient book full of fables, myths, contradictions, errors, and foolishness only serves to fulfill the prophecy and truth of the above verse. 9. 
failure to recognize analogies, parables, and or types. Similar to context and genre, the Bible oftentimes employs various techniques of writing and, if you will, storytelling, which serves to shed understanding and enlightenment on spiritual realities using earthly analogies and subject matter with which we humans are familiar with. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was most prolific in using what is known as parables to demonstrate theological and spiritual lessons. People often get distracted in making the mistake of trying to ascertain whether or not the underlying stories in these parables Jesus told were historical or not. But Jesus made it clear that when he spoke parables, he did so primarily as an illustrative tool to help those with discernment better understand spiritual truths. At the same time, these same parables caused confusion to those without discernment. So in some ways we might say that the Bible employs parables and other literary devices as a kind of code best understood by those to whom God blesses with his spirit of enlightenment. While parables are better understood by most who have the above component, perhaps lesser known but equally important are the analogies, types, and shadows which have been to some degree discussed in our ongoing episodes under various titles. These analogies, types, and shadows depict larger substantive realities found elsewhere in the Bible, the Godhead, or eternity. Just as with parables, it would be a mistake to focus, to force, or to limit such topics into simple historical narrative entries while neglecting to examine and accept the potential larger truths which are intended and underlie them. Finally, 10. Other. The above list is by no means complete. When it comes to Mr. Ash, there are any number of excuses, reasons, or rationalizations which he will use to come to his desired result and conclude that the Bible is untrustworthy. God does not exist, and in general, religion, especially the Christian religion, is illegitimate. Mr. Ash does not simply use one of the nine points— Mr. Ash mixes and blends them together like a master chef in order to achieve his outcome. The only approach and outcome that Mr. Ash will not allow for is that God exists. God is the ultimate author and authority of meaning, morals, justice, beauty, truth, and reality. The Bible is God's word, and man is God's creation made to worship, honor, and have fellowship with God. These ten points represent the criterion forming the foundation necessary for correctly answering most, if not all, apparent Bible contradictions. Perhaps more importantly, correctly using and or possessing them will likely provide the tools required to prevent the mistakes which all too often are the genesis of contradictions in the Bible to begin with. With this being said, we are now ready with the potential information needed to address and answer 
any apparent Bible contradictions posed and any potential episodes yet to come. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.